You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so there are a couple things that I want to talk about. One is, um, is there anything that's in the news that everyone thinks or anyone thinks that we should be covering that we're not covering? Well, I mean, there's that uh, neutrino result, which now seems to have just been experimental error, and and maybe do a show about major science gaffes, because that, mm-hmm. that allows you to show how science works, that science doesn't always get it right, like not that. the mm-hmm. first time. That's a good idea. Well, and there's just been a recent paper on the retractions in scientific journals and how that is going up. That so might do be a good sign. Yeah, do a whole show about science mistakes, I have mistakes in science. somewhere in my dad's history book that has the Piltdown Man in it. <laughs> is that right? The actual Piltdown yeah, Man is in your dad's book? Yeah, between the leaves of the book. I think he wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Piltdown. How well, about science, science friction? I like that. Uh, yeah, overworked. Science friction. Everybody talks about science friction. Okay, the only reason that you don't like that is you didn't come up with that title. That might be one reason, but I don't think that's it. No. How about, uh, Science you know, stumbles? I don't know. Yes? What if we called the show Science, and then the second word would be science, but it would be upside down? So it would be one of those things that you read... It's a puzzle like science and then science turned upside down. Or you could have a question nope. mark at the beginning and the end, <laughs> and one of them's upside down. Oh. <laughs> science. Missteps, errors, goofs, uh, wrong turns. Science dead end ahead. Science takes the wrong off ramp. No. <laughs> science downloads the wrong MapQuest map, prints it. And takes off an error in the wrong direction. Well, That's not going to fit on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, benefit of being concise. Come on, Gary, you're good at time. I am. I'm guys, really good at it. Come on, come up with the title. <laughs> so much pressure. Okay, everybody, I guess just think about something on your own, and we'll reconvene. Group collaboration. Well, it can be a messy affair. A few great ideas, lots of mediocre ones, and all arrived at by a circuitous route that, despite all the breakthroughs, often leads to no conclusion, only an agreement to meet again later. Do you think we have a lot of breakthroughs? Yes, I think so. Yes. But you would say that our meetings overall are productive, don't you think? I really enjoy throwing ideas around. Well, yeah, I do too, and I think, that in fact, the sum is greater than the parts. But, you know, sometimes you want the input from a group if you're doing something creative, But sometimes you don't. I mean, if I'm taking photographs, if I'm image processing them, whatever, I'm better on my own. Okay, but we're not solitary beings floating around in space. As humans, eventually we have to interact. We have to come together to solve our problems, innovate, create. And we have to do all of that together. We're a social species. Yeah, but sometimes groupthink is beneficial, and sometimes it's just too many cooks. But two brains are better than one. Instead of three pounds of cogitating power... Ah, the Rubik's Cube. Let me don my thinking cap. You have six pounds of brain power. Begin with the red edge piece, Gary, and move it two quarter turns. Okay, Tanya. Hey, it worked. Together we're solving the Rubik's Cube. Yeah, well, sure. Two brains can be better than one, just as four brains could quadruple cogitating power. Orange is opposite red. So, move the orange corner piece a full turn. Right. Okay. Now you have a whole row of orange. Thanks, everyone. Working together on a Rubik's Cube sure is efficient and more fun. But then are eight brains better than four? I'd skip the red corner pieces for now. Okay. This order. Blue, green, then red. Blue, green, then red. Okay. The whole row. The whole row. Move the side to the top. Which top? The other way. The other way. All right. No, skip the red corner pieces. Oh, okay. Or 16. 
Why didn't you do the cross? How do I Always do that? begin with white. Do you not know what a quarter turn is? But oh my god, that's so not a quarter turn. Okay. Corner pieces, corner pieces. Or, or 32. This is the order. Blue side, green side, then red side. Uh, just give me... No, finish the side, then move on. You know, I don't... move the whole row. Begin with the white cross. White cross? Primary colors first. Or 64 brains. You gotta move the diagonal side perpendicular wise. Well, get edge pieces correct first. Oh, okay. Not the blue corner. Hold on. Isn't the center piece supposed to move? It has to be an opposite corner piece. What does that mean? Move the red to that side. Which side? With large groups, the cerebral poundage may be impressive, but the results may not be. First move the whole row. What? Counterclockwise. This is confusing. Begin with the white cross. What's a white cross? We're not solving anything. This is more jumbled than when we began. Get away from me. (laughs) So, under what circumstances do groups work best? It's Groupthink on Big Picture Science, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. The question has implications for puzzle solving, but also how societies chart their collective futures. We'll hear later what mistakes the Roman Empire made, for example. Maybe that will help us to avoid making those mistakes ourselves. And at least one person thinks we spend too much time celebrating the power of numbers. Group retreats, staff meetings, open plan offices, memo by committee. Our collective emphasis on the hive mind has left little time for... Solitary contemplation, otherwise known as thinking. Remember thinking? Susan Cain does. She's the author of Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. Nowadays, we live in a time that I call a culture of the new groupthink, where we tend to believe that creativity comes from this oddly gregarious place. Um, But in fact, solitude is really crucial. And the reason is that we're all such fundamentally social creatures, it turns out, and introverts included, we're, we're all very social. And so when we get together in a group of people, what happens is we can't help but be conscious of what other people are thinking and be influenced by them. You refer to group think. Yeah. And so this is something that happens when groups of humans get together and they begin to think as one entity. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm really using the term groupthink a little differently from the way it's been used in the past by people like Irving Janus. Um, you know, t- to me, it's, it's more about just this, to my mind, misguided belief that everything good, everything creative, everything productive comes from a group. Psychologists have been researching the phenomenon of group brainstorming for the last 40 years, and they have found that brainstorming actually really doesn't work and that almost always individuals will produce more ideas and better ideas than they do when they come together as a team to brainstorm. Let's just get a picture of what kind of brainstorming we're talking about. So do you mean that when we all file together into the conference room and sit around a table and and talk together, or is there something else that's happening, another phenomena that's happening that leads to this emphasis on groupthink and brainstorming? Um, No, you know, I am talking about the phenomenon of people coming together into a room um, to brainstorm a particular idea. And what has been found is that the reason that this, there there are a number of reasons that this doesn't work. One of them is what I was talking about before, that we instinctively take on other people's opinions. Another one is is what we do more consciously. It's been found that when we dissent from group opinion, that we pay a painful price for doing that. The neuroscientist Gregory Burns out of Emory University found that when we dissent, um, a small organ in our brain, the amygdala, which is associated with the fear of social rejection, becomes more activated at that moment. And he calls this the pain of independence. And it's the pain that we all feel at these moments, maybe consciously, maybe not. So what uh, you're saying that there are solid psychological neurobiology Mm -hmm. um, supports this idea that humans tend to conform with other humans. So if you're sitting around a table and you're all supposed to brainstorm whatever the next project is going to be, there may be someone there who doesn't think we should go ahead with whatever it might be, but he or she will agree to go along because of this phenomenon you just described. Right. And sometimes they're agreeing consciously to do it, and sometimes they, honest to God, think that they agree with what the group is saying, but they have been subtly influenced by the group. So this is a particular phenomenon that happens with humans because we evolved as social creatures, and mm-hmm. there's a reason why we all need to stick together mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and not wander off onto the savanna and get eaten by a lion <laughs> right. or whatever animals they had back then. But does the group 
think phenomena that you're referring to refer to any kind of collaboration or the sort of crowdsourcing that we draw on on the internet or, or just the collaboration that occurs in cyberspace? Yeah, you know, that's a real important distinction because what I was saying before about brainstorming, you know, having been found to largely be ineffective, um, does not apply to electronic brainstorming. That is the one exception to the rule where uh, people who are brainstorming electronically often have more ideas and good ideas. And um, and in that case, the larger the number of the people in the group, the better the group does, which is the exact opposite of what happens in real life, where the larger the number of people in the group, the worse the group performs. Um, do you, do so, we know why? Why is that? Well, because when you are interacting electronically, you know many of the barriers that get in the way uh, when you're in an in-person meeting fall away. There's a larger sense of anonymity, so there's less of that pain of independence that we were talking about. You kind of feel it less when you're not actually looking at the person and getting cues of disapproval from reading facial expressions and so on. And also, one of the problems that happens in in in-person groups is uh, something that psychologists call process blocking, where if one person is talking, then by definition, the minds, the mind space of the other people in the room have to be devoted to what that other person is saying as opposed to thinking their own thoughts. But if you're sitting alone at a computer participating in a group discussion, there's just there's more space available to you to be thinking your own thoughts and to be contributing them at the same time. Now, one of the things you do in, in your book and in your writing is you divide the world, and I know these categories are not pat, mm-hmm. but for the purpose of this argument, into the introverts and the extroverts. And yeah. I wonder if you could say a little bit about what those categories are. I mean, you could be an extrovert who likes to read a lot, so you're not quite sure if you're an introvert or an extrovert, but how would you describe these categories? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a good question. So introverts are people who, in general, prefer lower stimulation environments. Um, so less social stimulation. Maybe you'd rather have a glass of wine with a close friend instead of going to a big party full of strangers. But it can also be a preference for just lower levels of background noise or that sort of thing. Where do you fall in these, in these categories? Well, uh, I'm definitely an introvert. You know, I like to have a lot of time to myself. And uh, in general, I prefer the company of close friends and family to, you know, kind of being really out and about. Because one wouldn't guess that by the way that you're talking right now. You're very animated. You're energetic. You're on a book tour. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an important thing. So first of all, the... The number of introverts in this country, according to the latest shocking statistics, it's 50%. And I think that the reason this seems so surprising is that most introverts learn to act more extroverted than they are. I think this is something we learn kind of instinctively um, from a very young age. And and what's in, what's important about these categories and the reason is not to, to pigeonhole everyone, but right, what you're getting right. at is the idea that that introverts, people who need a little bit more solitude, that they want to get away from the world, the hustle and bustle of the world, so they can puzzle things out on their own. Another word for them are thinkers. Yeah, you know, you know, of course, there are many different ways to get at the great mystery of what creativity is, but my feeling is. For centuries, humanity has understood that solitude is really a core piece of the human condition. It's a core piece of transcendence. So I think we've understood this for a long time, and it's only recently that we've forgotten it. Now, there are some famous scientific introverts. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Darwin, Mm -hmm. there's Einstein. You write about both of them. And there was one who was described by Wordsworth as, quote, a mind forever voyaging through strange seas of thought alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who was that? That was Isaac Newton. So that's an example of an introvert who accomplished a lot by going off and, and, and working on his own. And, and often these introverts can sustain the solitude and, and the work for long periods of time. And that's really important to productivity. Yeah, yes. And this is one of the keys. This, this is why introverts sometimes have an advantage when it comes um, not only to creativity, but to, um, to gaining expertise in general. There's this great quote from Einstein where he says, it's not that I'm so smart, it's that I stay with problems longer. And um, and this to me is very characteristic of an introvert's mentality because introverts have been they've been found to stick longer with puzzles, for example. You know, if you ask them to to sit and solve a complicated maze problem, the introverts will spend more time than the extroverts you know, inspecting the puzzle before they actually jump into it. And then they'll spend more time working at it. And then they often get the right answer. You include in your roundup of scientists who were famous introverts, a contemporary computer engineer, Steve Wozniak, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and say that without an introvert like Steve, we would not have an Apple computer. Yeah, you know, 
the story of Apple Computer, it's, it's a really interesting one. So Steve Wozniak was this shy kid who was growing up in California in the 1960s, and he had had a dream from the time he was very young of there being a personal computer for everyone. And he finally realized this dream when he went to a meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club, which was this group of like-minded engineers who had the same dream. And he was so inspired by them that he went home that very night, uh, the night of the first meeting, and started drawing up the blueprints for what would become, three months later, the first Apple computer which he then he showed his design to Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs said, yes, we, we've got to do this. We, we have to sell this thing. Now, Apple would never have been created without Wozniak being catalyzed by the Homebrew Computer Club and without him joining forces with Steve Jobs. But the actual work, the actual work process of him designing that computer over that three-month period of time was something he did alone. You know, he sat in his cubicle at Hewlett Packard, where he was working at the time, uh, late into the night and early in the morning, and he worked by himself uh, and describes it as a real joyful period in his life. And he now, when he tells other people who want to be as creative as he once was, when he tells them how to do it, he says, you've got to work alone, not on a committee, not on a team. So are you saying that today you couldn't have a Steve Wozniak? I mean, he couldn't go off and work on something, or at least it wouldn't be encouraged for him to go off and work on something for months at a time, that that's being, that that's being ironed out of the way that we work? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, and that's what I'm concerned about. You know, in- increasingly our offices are designed as open-plan offices where we are now working without walls um, in large groups of people, kind of subject to the noise and the gaze of coworkers all day long. And um, yeah, and it's not encouraged in many organizations to go off by yourself. I mean, quite the contrary. It's seen as somehow suspect. It's seen as you're not pulling your weight, seen as being antisocial. And in fact, it's really none of these things. It might just be someone wanting and needing to go off and think and do something that will benefit the group. Susan Kane, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking, is Susan Cain's book. Some people like the noise. We'll hear one man's response to Susan Cain's request for more me time in a moment. I solved it. I solved the Rubik's Cube. All together now, it's Groupthink on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Back in the day, Thomas Edison could make a film all by himself, as he would do in his New Jersey studio, The Black Mariah, photographing jugglers, people sneezing, and other curiosities. But today, when the credits roll on a film, the names of dozens and dozens of people scroll by, many of them occupations I've never heard of. What's a gaffer? A greensman? Best boy? But that's today. Today, we want collaboration. But in the greener pasture days of yore... We still collaborated. Sure, we celebrate the idea of solitary geniuses. We imagine Mozart composing his sonatas in solitude. Just the piano, a quill, paper, and the music in his head. But even with these guys, there was more teamwork than you think. So while Susan Cain might like to vote everyone off the island... My research shows that collaboration is the key to creativity. Washington University psychologist Keith Sawyer finds comfort and wisdom in the crowd. Most of the world's great inventions and discoveries and artistic works come from people working together, not alone. After Susan Cain wrote an op-ed essay in the New York Times extolling the virtues of solitary thought and quiet contemplation, the paper published a rebuttal by Keith Sawyer. Decades of scientific research, he wrote, have shown that great creativity is not a solitary venture, but almost always based on collaboration. In Susan Cain's book, one of her claims is that brilliant and creative computer programmers work alone. And in fact, that's just the opposite of what the latest thinking is among computer companies, that in fact they're starting to use what they call pair programming, 
where they have pairs of programmers work together at the same computer, and they find that pair programming results in much better programs. So although we might have a stereotype of the nerdy computer scientist, in fact, collaboration benefits even computer programming. Okay, but that, that's working in teams of two. Could you generalize that to larger teams? Would you do better if you had a team of, of five or half a dozen? The size of the team that's optimal depends on the nature of the task. I think it would be hard to have more than two programmers at one computer. But there are other tasks where five or six people might be more optimal. In many cases, if it's more like a design task, and in particular, tasks that require creativity benefit from teams that are at least four or five people. Well, I can subscribe to that in some sense when I think of how, for example, situation comedies are written. Comedies are usually written by teams of writers. In fact, a lot of writing for television is done in teams. And I can well imagine that you benefit from getting these multiple ideas. But on the other hand, Mozart wasn't writing his music in a team. Yeah, you're exactly right about comedy writing. Most people don't realize how collaborative writing today is. So if you're looking at a situation comedy, there could be 10 or 15 different people on that team. It's the same way with movie scripts, where, again, 15, even 20 writers may have their hands on a movie script. Now, you asked me about Mozart, and we have all sorts of legends that come down to us from history of this sort of mythical, solitary genius. It turns out that most of those stories aren't exactly true. They misrepresent the nature of creativity. So yes, there are certain kinds of creative tasks which you may need to do alone, like sitting in front of a musical score and writing down notes. But even the classical composers like Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, they often modified their works in response to requests from soloists. They may have been composing for a specific violinist, for example. They often rewrote their works after opening night, after comments from respected colleagues. So there's a lot more collaboration that goes on in even something like music composition than we generally realize. It happens in writing, too. A lot of people will be familiar with The Lord of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. Well, he was a member of a writer's group. They would get together once a week, exchange each other's manuscripts, comment on their characters and plot lines, and the works that they generated were very much benefited from these weekly conversations. Well, that leads me to another one of Susan Cain's point, because she pointed to research that neurobiology supports the idea that people tend to go along with other members of a group. Uh, there's some sort of conformity, some pressure to go with the flow, defer to the most popular or assertive voice, sort of uh, somebody who takes charge. Even if they don't have the best ideas, they're in charge, they present their case well, and we have a natural tendency to go along with that. That sounds like something in the, in the way of creativity. There are lots of potential pitfalls to groups. And we can all think of situations when we've been in groups that made everybody dumber than we would have been alone. But psychologists have done a lot of research to identify what causes groups to be less effective than they might optimally be. I think we have a pretty good understanding now. So, yes, you could certainly find yourself in an ineffective group. Absolutely, that happens. And you might be better off leaving that group and working alone. But I think it's better to try to understand the research on what makes collaboration effective, and then you're better prepared to avoid those common errors. Susan Cain uses the example of Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. It says that Apple Computer wouldn't have really come to fruition without the efforts of this guy who was described as a shy introvert. I have to say that I've met Steve Wozniak, and it didn't impress me that he was a shy introvert, but maybe he was back when they founded uh, Apple Computer. Is this a legitimate example? I think the story of Apple's founding is yet another example of the creative power of collaboration. For example, we had, of course, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. They would not have had the ideas that they had if they had not participated in a group called the Homebrew Computer Club, where everyone was coming up with these ideas and designing these circuit boards. They absolutely benefited from participating in that collaboration. Isn't it true, though, that sustained focus is an absolute necessity to master some subject or to accomplish something, and, and we need solitude for that. 
And it's becoming harder and harder to do that. If I look in the world of science, most science papers these days are collaborative efforts, and that's because of the complexity of the equipment and so forth. And on the other hand, here you have Isaac Newton, and even though he said he stood on the shoulders of giants, he came up with that stuff by himself, as far as I know. A recent study in Science Magazine, published in 2007, shows that scientific papers are becoming more collaborative. The number of authors has increased. And what's even more interesting is that the papers with more authors turn out to be more influential. More other scientists cite those articles. So absolutely, collaboration is, if anything, becoming more and more important. Creative lives are lives that involve moments and periods of solitude, and they involve moments and periods of conversation and collaboration. And perhaps, you know, it's a glass half full and a glass half empty sort of thing. I'm very extroverted, so I do research on collaboration. Susan Cain, self-admitted introvert, so she's writing a book about introversion. And we're probably seeing, to some extent, the same phenomena. But in my view, I still would argue that collaboration is at the center, and collaboration is the driver of creativity and innovation. Keith Sawyer, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you so much. Keith Sawyer is the sole author of Group Genius and a psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis. So I wonder what we take away from this. Seth, Keith says that it's really important to work in groups, and that's where a lot of creativity comes. And Susan Cain is emphasizing solitary endeavors to produce creativity. Well, I think that all it says is that the best approach is often contingent. I mean, there's some things like writing comedies where it's better to have a group. And there are other things like, I don't know, I I think that uh, my photography right? Where it's just something you do on your own and having somebody else involved is just going to stymie your creative genius if you happen to have any. No, you're not standing in a line of impatient moviegoers or among a mob of revolutionary dissidents. Those bickering voices are just in your head. And no, you're not crazy. Quite the opposite. It's normal brain activity. According to neuroscientist David Eagleman, even when you think you're alone, you're in a crowd of unconscious voices, different parts of yourself vying to be heard whenever you want to make a decision. His name for it, the Parliament of Selves. David, what percentage of our behavior is governed by our unconscious mind, if you just had to put a figure on it? It's impossible to put a figure on it, but almost all of what you think and do and act and believe is generated by parts of your brain that you have no access to and no acquaintance with. So um, the analogy I use in my book is that the conscious mind, which is the part that flickers to life when you wake up in the morning, that's like a passenger on a transatlantic steamship that's taking credit for the whole journey without acknowledging all of the massive engineering that's underfoot. Because it turns out that everything you do from lifting a bottle of water to your mouth to riding a bicycle, falling in love, recognizing a friend's face, getting a joke, all of these things are happening under the hood. They involve massive neural computations. But what's happening down there is essentially totally alien to us. When you look inside the skull, you find this pink computational material that's unlike anything we know how to build. And it's you know, it's miniaturized and self-healing and can contemplate the cosmos. And if you found this on another planet, you'd say, we have discovered the weirdest thing imaginable, except we actually do discover that inside our own heads, and it is us. So the idea is that we don't actually really know why we do what we do. And yet, if you asked anyone, almost anyone, they would say, of course I know why I picked up that bottle of water or why I was attracted to that woman or whatever it is that we do in our lives. We feel like we have control over our behavior. I think this is why it's taken centuries, really, for the science to develop, because you're exactly right that it's easy to intuit that we are the masters of our own ships. And so it takes careful observation and statistical analysis to realize, wow, there are unconscious influences on what people are doing. And of course, we can set these things up in the laboratory where we manipulate some signal that nobody picks up on consciously, and yet it navigates their behavior in a major way. Now, you've likened the brain to ships, but also to cars, because you're talking about under the hood, so I assume you're talking about automobiles. Is the brain like a ship with a lot of crew members, or is it like a car? Which which analogy do you want to go with? The brain is like a lot of things. So uh, in my writing, I usually use lots of analogies, each of which end up running out of steam at some point. So I try to be clear on which parts are useful. The, the ship analogy is just illustrating the size of all the 
engineering that happens under there. The under the hood analogy is, of course, useful just for thinking about all of this. You know, when, when you get in your car and you press on the gas pedal, you move forward. But essentially, it's like magic, right? There's a lot of stuff happening in the engine that you don't know about until you grow up and learn how an engine works. And, and it's exactly that way with walking, eating, speaking, um, social interactions, all of that. I want to get to another analogy that you use. And what it does is it unpacks this idea or this assumption that we have that there are two minds. There's a conscious mind and then there's the unconscious mind. But the way that you describe it, the unconscious mind has all these different selves that are arguing with themselves, I guess if you can put it that way. And you likened it to a parliament, to a parliament of selves. What does that mean? So essentially the brain is not you can't think of it as one thing. It's made up of all these competing subpopulations that are all trying to control the single output channel of your behavior. And so uh, if I put some chocolate cake in front of you, part of your brain wants to eat that, part of your brain wants to resist it, and, and you end up arguing with yourself and feeling conflicted. And conflicted is a term that we can apply to humans, but you can't really think of a a toaster being conflicted or, or a, your computer being conflicted because it just has one set of instructions and it runs with it. But like a good drama, the human brain runs on conflict. And so it's like a parliament where you have different political parties voting for different things and with enough debating and so on, the vote tips and, uh, and one solution wins. You either eat the cake or you don't. And so all of this is considered the self and it's happening in the brain because we feel like when we talk about ourselves, it's one thing right? But you're saying that it's many things going on. And I wonder if you could give me an idea of some of the other arguing that goes on. I mean, there's, should I have the cake or should I not have the cake? That's about willpower mainly. And But what, what other arguments are going on? So the cake thing is can be boiled down to a short-term versus long-term, which turns out we have different networks that care about making these decisions at different timescales. You also have closely related breakdown of networks where that have traditionally been called, let's say, rational and emotional thinking. And this is a, a classic battle. The ancient Greeks said that life is as though you are a charioteer and you're trying to stay down the middle of the road, but you have the black horse of passion and the white horse of reason, and they're both pulling in opposite directions. And you have to sort of hold on to both to get yourself staying on the road. So it's long been recognized that there are battles between, let's say, reason and emotion. In more technical experiments, when patients get the two hemispheres of their brain divided because of very special surgeries, uh, it turns out that their two brains, the two halves of their brains are essentially independent brains now. So what that unmasks is that there's always a natural rivalry going on between the two hemispheres. And then when you get down to smaller and smaller levels with more technical things like how does the brain detect motion, you find out that motion detection has probably evolved several times in evolutionary history. And the brain has lots of ways of doing it, and those fight it out. It's interesting that you talk about irrational behavior because you think if Homo sapiens sapiens has evolved for 8 million years or so, you would think we are finely tuned. And so there must be an evolutionary advantage to being irrational at times. Well, that's right. Sometimes there's an evolutionary advantage to being irrational, but it, it seems to me that economic rationality is just sort of a fantasy of economists anyway. It's not. It, it's obviously not the important thing for a species to survive because there are lots of actions that people make that involve kindness and compassion and so on. And to the economist, this seems crazy, but it actually is rational from another point of view if you think about the pro-social glue that provides for a community and the reproductive benefits that gives it a higher level. So how we define irrationality is it depends on the field of the person doing it. Now, so when you're looking at the brain, when you're neuroimaging a brain, and you can you ever see these arguments going on? How the, the brain is conflicted in some ways, the cells are conflicted. And which part of our brain or our self emerges as the arbitrator? And then the one that emerges, the decision maker, whatever it is we decide to do. Can you actually see that happening in the brain? That's a very important question. It turns out the reason I liken it to a parliament is because there is no moderator or central figure that makes the decision. Instead, the parties battle it out, and at different moments in your life, it can tip different ways. So sometimes you'll eat the chocolate cake, sometimes you won't. And it's all you, but you're kind of nuanced, right? Sometimes you'll make different decisions in different contexts. And so there's nobody arbitrating, it's just different parties will win at different times. There's a parallel that you make to Galileo in our understanding of the cosmos when we understood as humans that we weren't center of the universe. And there seems to be a parallel going on in neuroscience. And what is that? When Galileo found the clinching proof that we were not at the center of the universe, 
religious critics decried that as a dethronement of man from his position at the center. But I, I suggest that dethronements have an upside, which is what we've discovered in the meantime, is that the universe is so much bigger and more wondrous and subtle than we ever imagined. And so it turns out that uh, the same thing's happening in neuroscience. We're not really the ones at the center anymore, and yet what we're discovering is absolutely mind-blowing and better than we might have intuitively thought. David Eagleman, thank you very much. Thank you, Molly. All the cells in David Eagleman's brain come together to form him, a neuroscientist at Baylor College of Medicine and author of Incognito, The Secret Life of the Brain. And now I ask, should I eat this chocolate cake? Parliament of Selves commence. Is it not true that the difference between our policy and his... The difference between our policy and his policy is we thought of it and he stole it. See if you can look across the dispatch box and just say it. The answer is yes. Unequivocally, yes. Yes, by George, I will take a bite. Up next, why groups of educated political conservatives are losing trust in science. Oh, and the rise and fall of civilizations. Yeah, that's all. It's Groupthink on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we've talked about what happens when groups get together to create or innovate, and also how your mind makes decisions as a collective device. But group decisions can affect the future of societies. And so you want those decisions to be as well-informed as possible. But the surprising result of a new paper by sociologist Gordon Gashaw is that as you increase education, trust in science goes down. Among American political conservatives. The paper, published in the American Sociological Review, is part of a larger project that he leads called The Politicization of Science in the Public Sphere. Gordon Gashaw's study went back to 1974. At that time, conservatives had the highest trust in science compared with moderates and liberals. But after 30 years, that trust has eroded, particularly among highly educated conservatives. That's one of the big surprises in the paper. So this change over time is actually concentrated among people, highly educated conservatives. So people with a graduate degree or a bachelor's degree. In fact, the change is entirely among that group of more educated conservatives. Well, how do you explain that? Because after all, if they're more highly educated, one presumes that they've been exposed to more science education. So this has been a long-standing kind of theory about public perceptions of science, that if you're more educated, you're going to like science. You know, the more you know about it, the more you like it. You know, this is a very surprising finding. But what I think is occurring here is that highly educated conservatives is really kind of an approximation for how much they understand the ideology, you know, how much they understand the nuances of what it means to be a conservative. And I think, you know, for whatever reason, the way that this has occurred over the last 30 years among conservatives is to kind of reject, you know, science. So is this just a matter of political ideology trumping science? I mean, in this case, I think I, I think so. You know, and I talk about this as an explanation in the paper a little bit about how th- there's really kind of been a growth of a conservative culture in the United States that provides kind of an alternative worldview, in many ways a reaction to other forms of knowledge like media and science. So, you know, other knowledge systems, you know, that claim to produce truth are going to be viewed in some ways as adversaries to this political subculture. Can you give me an example of some topic in science that, uh, for whatever reason, would be mistrusted by educated conservatives? Absolutely. You know, this paper was part of a a much larger project. Um, So there's a lot of analysis in the paper that, you know, operates behind the paper that I talk about. And one of the things that I find is that conservatives are particularly concerned with what I call regulatory science, which is science that's become 
incorporated into government, especially the federal government. So the poster child for this, I think, is the Environmental Protection Agency and climate change. So I think that's a source of tension with conservatives. Well, I can imagine that, you know, 40 years ago or whatever, scientists were perceived by the public uh, in, in the way that Hollywood portrayed them. You know, white lab-coated guys running around doing something in a laboratory that might result in a new kind of plastic or a new wonder right. drug or something. And sure. it didn't affect me. I mean, I could drive whatever car I wanted. But today, science is telling us something that uh, affects everybody very directly. Uh, is, is that simply the explanation for what's going on here? It's one possible explanation. So I talk about that. So maybe we're dealing with some sort of paradox, right, where science now has such a high level of cultural authority that it's, it's going to weigh in on subjects that are going to be controversial. And, you know, because of the way media operates, the megaphone has grown, you know. So more people are tuned into the fact that science is taking these controversial stances on evolution, you know, and climate change are, are good examples. Do, do we find this phenomenon in other countries, Gordon? For example, in Europe, is it the case that the more conservative parties are uh, somewhat more anti-science than they had been? Right. So this is another interesting finding. The preliminary findings of this research is that, no, the United States is kind of unique among similar advanced economies. So I looked at Western Europe and Japan, and among these countries, there does not seem to be a relationship between ideological orientation and attitudes towards science. And if there is a relationship, it's weaker and it's in the other direction. The opposition to science comes from the left. So it's not inherent to a conservative political point of view that you're anti-science. Right. This, this is just something. This is a local phenomenon. Well, finally then, Gordon, uh, what are the consequences here? I mean, if conservative groups distrust science, what, what does that mean in terms of our ability to solve some of the problems confronting the world today? This is, I think, the major concern. I think it's important to point out that skepticism in science is not a bad thing. In fact, you know, skepticism is an essential part of, of how science operates and how you know, intellectual activity works. I think the biggest concern is that uh, so there's two of them. One is that science can no longer be used as the, the arbiter of truth in political debates. And there's no longer consensus around what science says about something. I think the other issue is that if science is distrusted to a large degree, and we see that this distrust continues to grow year by year, that's what my data showed, you know, we could see a change in how science is organized in the U.S., you know, and as particularly how science is used in relation to government, you know, how it's funded. So I think that's one of the potentially dangers or at least implications of the research. Well, Gordon Gishaw, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Gordon Gishaw is a sociologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Well, do these political decisions matter in the long run? As it happens, the long run is Joseph Tainter's area of expertise. As professor of sustainability at Utah State University, Dr. Tainter studies the longevity of societies, what decisions they make that lead to their rise and to their fall. He's the author of The Collapse of Complex Societies. Joe, we've been talking in this show about the benefits of group decision-making. How well do societies generally do this? We have to think in terms of short-term versus long-term. What I see looking at historical societies is that people often make very good decisions in the short term, but they have long-term consequences that can be detrimental. The costs of these decisions accumulate, and it's the cumulative costs that tend to present problems over the long term. And we can see that very clearly, for example, in the many programs that we've instituted in our federal government, which are now controversial in many sectors. I would think that probably most of those programs served a good purpose when they were instituted, but it's the cumulative long-term cost that ultimately becomes a problem. And, and this is the case uh, with decision-making by societies in general. It's the cumulative long-term effects that cause problems. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that the problem is a structural one. I mean, it has to do with the fact that the problems are getting more difficult and not, as many people think, simply because the people making the decisions, setting the policies, are just incompetent. 
The problems are becoming more difficult. Problems have increased in scale. We now have problems that are global in nature and that have to be dealt with on a global basis. We also have problems that have had a long-term historical run-up to the situation today. Our federal finances are a perfect example of that. And we have to understand how that historical run-up happened. Humans did not evolve to be broad-scale thinkers, and this is one of the major problems that we have today. We evolved to think locally, which were the circumstances in which we had to live, in which our ancestors had to live, and we evolved to think short-term. There was never selective pressure to do otherwise, and so humans tend to be short-term, limited thinkers. You've studied a large number of societies that have collapsed, both in the old world and the new. Can you say that having more group input democracy, if you will, results in longer or shorter lifetimes for a society than having one person at the top. I mean, do committees run the world better? There are advantages and disadvantages to group decision-making versus top-down decision-making. Group decision-making has the advantage that it is consensual and people will generally agree to whatever decision is arrived at. One of its drawbacks is that it is slow, it's hard to reach a consensus, and the decisions are limited by the information available to a lot of people. Top-down decision-making tends to be faster, but there's the problem that the decision-makers at the top often undertake things for their own glorification. They engage in wars, they build expensive monuments, and so there's no simple answer. When we look at the collapse of civilizations, as you have, an obvious example that comes to my mind is the Roman Empire. You've argued that it wasn't the barbarians at the gates that caused their collapse. Rather, it was an inevitable consequence of the fact that the Roman Empire began to expand. Its maintenance became complex because they had to garrison the whole thing. And eventually, they simply couldn't afford it anymore, and it collapsed. You make it sound inevitable. Collapses happen because of a combination of internal factors and external problems. In the case of the Roman Empire, the great crisis that they faced was in the 3rd century AD, where there were a combination over a 50-year period of barbarian invasions, invasions from the Persians from the east, civil wars, and utter collapse of the currency so that the currency ultimately became worthless. The Romans responded to this basically by increasing in size and complexity their two main problem-solving institutions, and those were the government and the army. And this was successful, and the Roman Empire went on to survive for another 200 years. The problem is that it was very costly. Ultimately, the cost was energetic. This was a society run by agriculture, by solar energy, and the solar energy base couldn't be increased. So the empire was extracting higher and higher taxes from peasants. Peasants then couldn't replenish their families. They didn't have enough left over to raise large families. The population declined. And ultimately, the empire became so fiscally weakened that two centuries later, its collapse was inevitable. What the Roman emperors did, everything, almost everything they did in the short term was rational. It was a logical response to the crisis in which they found themselves. If they had decided differently, if they hadn't increased the size of the army, if they hadn't complexified the government, they would have collapsed even sooner. But at the same time, you can see that these actions set the stage for an inevitable collapse in the long term. So was it successful? Was the adaptation, the response that they made in the late third century successful? Well, they bought themselves another 200 years. In that sense, you would have to say it was successful. When we look at what we're doing today, when we look at the problems confronting us now, climate change, resource depletion, and so forth, are we really doing the best we can to address these things? Might we do better to have a worldwide czar in charge of these problems rather than counting on our democratic institutions for answers? Well, look at the example of Italy today where they have instituted a technocratic government that is addressing Italy's fiscal problems. And this government is having some success. But it can be successful only as long as people are willing to support it. And in time, if this government remains in power, it, it will lose the public support. It, it inevitably will lose public support because the reforms that it's instituting are painful. And there's already resistance growing to some of these reforms. As I said earlier, humans did not evolve to be broad-scale thinkers. People think locally and short-term in terms of their own lives, in terms of making the mortgage payment every month, getting the kids to soccer practice. The public as a whole is largely 
unaware in any detail of the kinds of questions that you raise about climate, resources. All of these are major challenges, but the public is not aware of the details of them because most members of the public are attending to their own lives. When we talk about climate change affecting us, say, by the year 2050, or oil supplies becoming scarce by the year 2020, this is an abstraction about the future to which people simply won't respond because it's too distant. It doesn't affect their lives today. Well, finally, Joe, I think you're probably aware that in our search for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, a critical factor is how long your average technologically competent society survives. Given your expertise, do you have any opinion about the survival prospects for societies out there? If there are civilizations out there comparable in complexity to our own and consisting of beings who, that have intelligence comparable to our own, they will face the same kinds of problems we do. They will grow complex to solve problems. They'll need energy and other resources to solve problems. And you can expect that those civilizations will go through processes and challenges leading ultimately to collapse as we've seen here on Earth. So how long could they last? Well, the civilization of the ancient Mediterranean basin existed for 1,700 years or so, uh, perhaps a little bit longer. Ancient Egypt persisted for 3,000 years, and China has an essentially continuous civilization persisting for 5,000 years. So 500 years to 5,000 years, um, based on what we know from our own planet, that would be my estimate. Joseph Tainter is professor of sustainability at Utah State University and the author of The Collapse of Complex Societies. Well, what I take from that is the more complex a society becomes, the more that it may fail in the end. Yeah, well, the thing about it that's so disturbing is the inevitability or seeming inevitability of it. I mean, is our own society, uh, Western society, doomed to failure simply because we get to a point of complexity where we can't handle, you know, new new challenges and we, we fall apart? Well, certainly there's a role to play in the sorts of decisions we make as a group and how well-informed they are, how smart those decisions are. Well, you can always hope for better government, but it sounds to me like it doesn't matter. I mean, that's what's got me scared. Maybe the solution is to have a civilization of one. Yeah. Oh, that's probably very stable. Not too much social life. <laughs> and, and the taxes would be low. Thanks to the collective brilliance of our production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Tanya Lewis. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Group Think. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and our Facebook page, Big Picture Science, and become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you like to listen in groups, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And remember, we present science stories that matter.